Welcome treasure seekers to Shandy Andy's Unguarded Treasure, Series 1, Episode 13. This month the OSR community is getting together to celebrate Dave Arneson's contribution to role-playing games under the banner of AAA, that is, Anchorites Appreciate Arneson. And my contribution is a review of the Judges Guild release of Dave Arneson's original Blackmore campaign titled The First Fantasy Campaign Plain Aid, which was first released in 1977. Gary and Dave shared credit on the white bus. But as things advanced, their relationship was on the rocks. Less people know his name, but he revolutionized war games with the first fantasy campaign. Arneson. First fantasy campaign playing aid consists of a booklet and two maps, one for the players and one for the judges. There were three versions that I was aware of, and I found out about these at achaeum.com, which is a good place to look up information about old role-playing games. And according to Achaeum, there were three printings between 1977 and 19. 18. The differences in the maps appear to be superficial. The maps were of size 17 inch by 22 inch and in a colour I would tend to call beige, which was pretty common for Judges Guild maps released in the sort of late 70s and early 80s. The maps all had numbered hexes and there's no legend on the map but the terrain is pretty obvious to work out. The player's map really just has the coastlines marked in and a few of the better known landmarks written on it whereas the judges one has all the details written into it. Now the booklet is varies a little bit uh, in that in the first and second printings it is apparently 96 pages and in the third printing is 64 pages. Unfortunately I'm not completely sure what causes the discrepancy in the page count between the printings but reading the wiki entry it does hint that this is related purely to a smaller font size um, used in the later printings. The review I'm going to do will be on the third printing. Sadly, as far as I'm aware, there is currently no way to purchase a new copy of the First Fantasy campaign. Um, no official PDF has ever been released for sale. I believe, but I'm not 100% certain, that this is because Judges Guild no longer has the copyright. It fell back to uh, Dave Arneson and... As far as I'm aware, nothing's ever been done to uh, republish this. However, 
As is the way of these things, it wouldn't take much detective work to uncover a PDF via the internet. You can get second-hand copies. Uh, they're not that common, but they do appear. For um, example, in the UK over here on eBay, last month in September, there was a first printing available, uh, which sadly went for over £50, so it was uh, out of my price range. Amazon also has copies uh, over in the States at the moment, and they're out for around about £125 for the cheapest one, I think. Uh, presumably, there's also postage to get over to the UK from here. So not, not cheap to get hold of the copies, unfortunately, nowadays. Let's start with the cover. That's in a sort of beigey... Um, colour so <laughs> beloved by Judges Kill back in the 1970s and the background picture is of a sort of stone gorge where you can just see the sky up at the top. It's got some red writing at the front which says the first fantasy campaign of role-playing aid by Dave Arneson and then there's a sort of image in the middle again in red which I've got to be honest I can't quite make out what it's supposed to be. And then it says, Judges Guild, 88-page book and two campaign maps revealing the history and details of the original fantasy role-playing game. Visit the dread Egg of Coot, Loch Gloomen, and the underworld below Blackmore Castle. And then right at the bottom it says, Fantasy Game System Not Included. One note that's probably worth mentioning about this is, according to IKM, the fact it says 88-page book on the front was a mistake carried through all the printings. There was never an 88-page book. The inside cover has a rather striking picture, which is in a circular frame. It's one of my favourite images in the book, and it shows a small tree on a at an angle on a hillside and then you can see the hills farther away and then there appears to be something on fire with smoke obscuring the hill that's farthest away that smoke reaches up to the sky which is again just about uh, visible around the top edge of the circle really nice picture that underneath it says judges guild and there's a dedication to Colleen Wordham and family. And then at the bottom, there's it says additional notes by Richard Snyder, cover by Pixie Bledsaw, illustrations by Kem Simpson and Dave Arneson, graphics by Bob Bledsaw and Bill Owen. Page two is a table of contents listing pages three right through to 63. Just to give you a idea of the type of subjects covered within the book. We've got Blackmore, the campaign. Blackmore's more famous characters. That's on page 13. Got the town of Blackmore on page 19. Wandering monster areas on page 30. Gypsy sayings on page 47. Lock Blumen is mentioned on the front cover that's on page 59 
Page two includes a foreword by Bob Bledsaw and an introduction by Dave Arneson himself. I'd actually like to read the foreword by Bob Bledsaw. It has been an especially satisfying experience to work with one of the giants of our hobby, Dave Arneson, the originator of the Dungeon Adventure concept. Much of the initial impetus of the fantasy role-playing as it exists today is due to the dedication and work of this imaginative and creative personality. Dave has attempted to show the development and growth of his campaign as it was originally conceived. I'm sure that he was tempted to update the work to match pace with new trends, but he presented the unpolished gem while preserving the feel and wonder of its unveiling, much to our benefit as fantasy game judges. For this, and the faith he has shown in Judges Guild as the publishers, Dave has my hearty gratitude. This work will answer many of the questions the entire hobby has been clamouring for since fantasy role-playing began its fervour in Midwesterners and spread across the nation and around the world. It is not what you expect. Within these pages are many new and previously unseen ideas ripe for use in your fantasy world. I'm sure you will enjoy it as much as I did. And you can bet your magic sword that more than nostalgia is contained herein. May your players experience the same gusto and pure pleasure of the first fantasy campaign. August the 9th, 1977. Bob Bledsoe. Dave Arneson's introduction is very enlightening. It's sort of three quarters of a page of A4, I guess. So I'm not going to read it all out, but I would like to highlight a couple of areas. Um, the first one is in the first paragraph where it says in general a fairly loose procedure was set up for the establishment of each of the new these new areas with a great deal of emphasis being placed on the players themselves setting up new dungeons with my original dungeon master role evolving more into the job of coordinating the various operations that were underway at any given moment at the height of my participation as chief coordinator, there were six dungeons and over a hundred detailed player characters to be kept track of at any one time. And the second section I'd just like to read out is to do with combat. And it says combat was quite simple at first and then got progressively complicated with the addition of hit location, etc., as the player's first role for characteristics, the number of hits a body could take ran from 0 to 100. As the player progressed, he did not receive additional hit points, but rather he became harder to hit. All normal attacks were carried out in the usual fashion, but the player revived a saving throw against any hit that he received. Thus, although he might be hit several times during the melee round, in actuality, he might not take any damage at all. Only fighters gained advantage in these melee saving throws. That first quote seems to indicate then, that effectively Dave Arneson was running what we now call, uh, nowadays I guess, a Westmarch's campaign, where the effects of different players in, under different referees 
uh, in different groups could affect other groups. So that was quite interesting, I thought. And then in the second quote, it seems that quite a lot of change from when Dave originally ran his Blackmore campaign to how it arrived in the very first edition of Dungeons and Dragons, where hit locations were no longer there, and I don't believe saving throws were as well. So some interesting background, I feel, there in that introduction. Pages 4 to 11 cover Blackmore the campaign. And this seems to cover what Dave Arneson says, Scenario 3, which was the third year of running Blackmore. He does make a note that he had lost the notes for the first two years, which is a shame, but there you go. I'm sure we've all had that where we've lost some notes before. And... To be honest, these pages really do show that role-playing was coming out of wargaming. There are a lot of tables with the uh, size of armies, the income from villages and cities, how much armies cost to maintain, how much roads cost to build, canals cost to build, how much individual units cost... Um, it does have a little, a few diagrams on the type of castles. There are three which Dave Arneson notes. A gate round tower with ditch, a gate square tower, four walls, gatehouse with ditch, and a gate four square towers, eight walls, gatehouse and ditch. And there's little uh, top-down views and side-on views of those three types of castle. Um it definitely mentions magic and special forces which can be um, purchased. He lists hobbits, dwarves, ents, pixies, elves, rocks, hero, superhero. So there's obviously fantasy elements are well embedded into this campaign. And where it lists the evil egg of Coot, they seem to be allowed to pick from monsters as well. So that seems to include... Things like whites and giants, bullrogs, true trolls, trolls, ogres, lycanthropes, wraiths. So there's a whole host of different units that they're including. Um, Dave Arneson also lists religious uh, buildings and sort of costs that are involved in those. One particular paragraph I do like is uh, to do with tourism, and I'll quickly read this one out. For every hundred gold piece invested in advertising, one tourist will visit your area, stay at your inn, spend his money there, and become a non-player character. If he leaves the area safely, he will return next year with a friend. The third year, three will come, adding an additional person per year up until the tenth year when they will come with their families and settle, in brackets, 50 people, as farmers or fishermen. Losses will reduce settlement proportionally. If there are more than half are lost on a single trip, they will not return the next year or ever again. They will arrive as do the farmers. That was a very interesting insight, I thought, into how Dave Arneson was putting together the type of things that could occur, certainly not something I've ever seen uh, mentioned in a role-playing campaign I've played in. 
The bottom of page 11 and all of page 12 comes under the heading of campaign map notes. Dave Arneson gives a short description of sort of the history of his campaign, noting that the Great Kingdom map came from the Castle and Crusade Society's map. He also mentions that the players soon moved on to use the outdoor survival map, which was to the south of this terrain. The outdoor survival map being the Avalon Hill map, I believe. He mentions several events and play and how it affected players. And then also there is a, a, a sketch map on page 12. And underneath it, uh, and that map, it shows where the Egg of Cooties and the Kingdom and the Dragon Hills and the Great Ocean and the Duchy of Ten and the, and the Desert are all mentioned, as well as Elf Forest. Now, interestingly, underneath that map is a terrain key to campaign map, which appears to bear no relationship to the actual map above it, but seems to be the actual key to the separate maps uh, that came with the booklet. The top of page 13 shows a picture by Ken Simpson, which is of a, what looks look to be like a Viking longship rowing along by the side of a fortress and at the front, standing on top of the headpiece of the ship is a wizard who appears to be sending a lightning bolt out which is hitting the fortress and some stone blocks are showing falling into the water and then there's also what appears to be some type of huge missile coming from the fortress aimed at the longship and that picture has the text above it saying scenes from the run by the great black castle of the orcs the ship was damaged but got by while the fort was practically ruined Pages 13 to 17 are lists of Blackmore's more infamous characters. And they include both what I believe are protagonists and also uh, player characters. The Egg of Coots, which I understand is the ultimate villain in Dave Arneson's campaign, is, is noted. And he appears to be of an unknown physical form who seems to communicate via mental contact. Uh, he appears to be what I'd describe as a chaotic evil being. Then there is the Ran of Afu, who appears to be a magic user who once studied under the uh, Egg of Coot, but has now <coughs> left and is now running his own um, area within Blackmoor. He seems to be what we would probably think of as a lawful evil type of character. Then there is the Jinn of Salik, one of the greatest wizards in the world, who apparently uh, his spells never fail. Where interestingly, it does appear that there are percentage chances of other magic users failing. Again, something that was lost by the time we got to D&D. Next 
listed is Marfelt the Barbarian. Then there is the Duke of the Peaks and the Blue Rider. I particularly like the last paragraph under the Blue Rider. And it says, The Blue Rider himself seems content to remain in the armour at all times. This has somewhat hindered his wenching, though, and after doing battle has been heard disdainfully to utter, Let me out! Obviously referring to attacking the enemy outside the castle, or How do you turn it off? Referring to the great lust for battle still dominating him, even after the most strenuous actions. His desire to attack the enemy has even been exhibited itself while rushing upon great foes, hollering, No! Stop! Telling the enemy to flee his wrath. I did find that quite amusing and gives us perhaps an indication of Dave Arneson's sense of humour. Next is listed Mellow and the Hobbits. Um, the Hobbits are nearby inhabitants of Blackmore, uh, inhabiting a crossroads to the east of the town. Mallow appears to be uh, the sidekick to the Blue Rider. And within Ma Mallow and the Hobbits section is a, a top-down diagram of Mallow's Hobbit House. And it says by Blackmore's Troll Bridge. And there's a, a little diagram there of a, a house with a few rooms in and where the tables are and everything. Next is the Great Sveni, who is the first paladin of the kingdom. And next listed is the Bishop. And it says the religious life of Blackmore is dominated by the Bishop of the Church of the Facts of Life. So there you go. Those are the main characters listed within Blackmore. Pages 17 to 23 then cover Blackmore itself, where we're given the population, the area, resources, ruling class, and the country. It then moves on to cover the history of the points of interest, where we have paragraph for Blackmore Castle, the pits, and the ruins, Wolseshead Pass, the Comeback Inn. And I'd like to read the section from the Comeback Inn as I find it quite amusing and again shows uh, Dave Arneson's great sense of humour, I think. The Comeback Inn, half price booze and lodgings. However, when you leave, you find yourself coming back into the inn. Walking out backwards does not help. To get out, attempts to burn the place down, etc., will have you beaten by the patrons. A player who has not come into the inn, grass your arm, leg, whatever, just as you reach the door, window, etc., from his position outside the inn and pulls you out. Jumping off the roof finds you landing in the tap room from the ceiling. Evil, chaotic types cannot enter. Good place to pick up information. And I seem to remember that Gary Gygax, in his first session uh, with Dave Arneson, as his referee, uh, actually went into the comeback inn and found out all about getting out being difficult. Next, it moves on to the town of the Blackmore map, which is on page 19. And there is a picture at the bottom of that just showing the gateway into Blackmore Castle. Then in page 20, we have an actual uh, top down map which shows the, uh, the actual settlement of Blackmore 
and we can clearly see the elf barricade, the castle, the church. Uh, not done in hexes, but done in squares, interestingly enough. And then we have some information on the Blackmore Castle's history. The haunted rooms and the like, the catacombs, the tower. And then on page 22, there's actually uh, a map, again, uh, on square graph paper, of the Blackmore Castle itself, uh, a top-down view of the five floors and the basement. It then uh, just lists the haunted rooms and gives a few paragraphs on each of those. Pages 23 to 27 come under the title Into the Great Outdoors. And here Dave Arneson seems to be writing about um, hex crawls and outdoor adventures. It includes, um, to start with, an encounter matrix uh, where there are different encounters for different types of squares. He's got uh, six different types of squares, open terrain, river square, mountain square, desert square, wood square, swamp square, and then 1d20 to generate the type of creature that's met in the encounter. Although, bizarrely, four, there's only one of them goes as far as 14. So 15 to 20 are blank on all of them. So there's a few bizarre decisions that uh, sort of involve the different types of dice that he uses at this um, case. Uh, there's a chance of avoiding an encounter, which is uh, a d6. And then it moves on to map movement, where again the different types of terrain against the different types of uh, creature that you're either using or even if you're on foot. So, for example, for desert terrain, if you're on a cargo tarn, it's 16. Now, interestingly, I can't see anywhere where it tells you what that 16 is, but I'm assuming it would be miles per week, or possibly hexes per week, because the map movement is definitely marked as weekly. So, again, rather vague, I have to say, and, uh, unless I've missed something in the actual detail. It then goes on to give wholesale and retail prices in gold pieces for the types of mounts, uh, wagons and equipment you might have. I don't know, if, I think this is some type of trading table. And there's a percent failure to arrive as well. So an example on this would be for a uh, he heavy cannon, the wholesale cost is 140, the retail price is 200, and the percent failure to arrive is 16. It then goes on to outdoors in Blackmoor section. Uh, this is on page 25. Uh, and there's some blurb here about um, an advice on how to do how to run outdoor adventures um, a very complicated system of finding out where you would encounter creatures within a hex um, i mean an example of this if i just read it quickly out 
For each time that the creatures are found in their lairs, there will be a chance that a portion of them are out in the countryside. To determine this number, assume that 40% of the population is always in camp and that up to 60%, 10 to 60%, are always outside the camp. Roll a die again and see how many miles, one to six miles, they are away from the camp. On a roll of six, the creatures outside of the camp are in two equal sized groups and you would roll again to determine how many miles away they are. Note, whenever sixes appear again, divide the proportion of the creatures in half again and roll for their positions. In this way, an original group of creatures starting at, say, 50 strong would first divide into groups of 25 and 12 and 6. So that, that, that sounds remarkably complicated to me. Um, I, I have sat down and actually worked it out, and it does make sense when you actually do that. But just reading through it quickly like that, it's very confusing, I have to say. Um, okay, then there's a section after that of migration where um, it says every spring the judge will roll percentage die to determine if new monsters have migrated into the cleared areas. Um, they can come from outside hexes, be generated inside hexes. There's talk of using chance cards, which apparently are touched on later on in uh, the booklet, and spring migrations which also occur uh, it then goes on on page 26 to give advice on drawing your own map i guess back in those days there's been precious little advice on how to do that whereas uh, this is a topic that's been well covered by the late 2000 um, on page 27 there's uh, a bit on human habitation uh, this time using 10-sided die. Again, it's, it's very arbitrary which types of die are used. Um, and it allows you to generate whether there's a city in the hex or whether it's just a hamlet. And again, the number of people in there could be generated uh, depending on a six-sided die or a 10-sided die. Um, it then goes on to do more about uh, encounters. And then there's quite an interesting uh, bit where Dave Arneson has divided up a standard hex into 88 sub-areas. And this allows you to roll percentiles, ignoring 89 or higher, so you can figure out where within the hex the encounter is. Wow. Uh, and that's the end of that section. The next section, pages 28 all the way through to 43, cover the Blackmoor dungeons. So these are the dungeons underneath Blackmoor Castle itself. It starts out with a half-page introduction by Dave Arneson, just detailing a few of the particular areas within the dungeons. He then goes on to mention a couple of the sort of characters that are there Safang he mentions who was originally a ninth level fighter uh, played presumably by Dave Fant and he fell prey to a vampire and didn't get away so he's now a random monster apparently that roams the Blackmoor dungeons he then mentions the elves um, and says after the second destruction of Blackmoor Castle the elves were made responsible for the care and protection of the area and its defence our elf player took a number of steps to do this and then it outlines four 
steps that the elves take to protect the castle. There are then some dungeon map notes um, and a diagram, uh, uh, sorry, a drawing by Ken Simpson, uh, which is titled Doorway to One of the Fowler Areas of the Dungeon. And that's uh, a wooden door with a uh, carved face all the way around it where the door sort of uh, forms the actual mouth of the carving. And over on the left-hand side is a gap in the uh, wall with uh, some eyes staring out. Now the next page, which is uh, page 30, uh, has something called Magic Protection Points, which I have to admit I couldn't really figure out what they were, if I'm honest. Uh, that's perhaps something I'll need to reread at a later date. Uh, it then goes on to the dungeon levels, and here, what effectively we've got are the rooms for each level listed, along with what is found in the rooms, and some details on that. So, for example, uh, first level room 3, 100 silver uh, SP, comma, 400 GP, comma, 3 gems, comma, polymorph self-protection, comma, 6 bodies. So it's all fairly basic stuff. Another example would be room 7, 32 co cobbles, AC7, 1, hit to kill. Well, a HDK it says, but I assume that means hit to kill. And it just goes on um, listing 2nd level, 3rd level, 4th level, 5th level, 6th level, 7th level, 8th level and ninth level. All the way down to 10th level. And then also for something called the Glendower Dungeons, of which there are four levels there. It also says the tunnel system and has the rooms and the money which are found in there and also what creatures. So that takes us all the way up to page 34. Now page 35 starts the actual diagrams for the dungeon levels. These are done on square graph paper, uh, in black and white, uh, fairly traditional. The one thing I would say, uh, which is slightly unusual um, for di for diagrams, is Dave Arneson makes a lot of diagonal, um, excuse me, <coughs> uh, diagonal uh, tunnels, where mostly they're at uh, you know either vertical or horizontal. But his have a, a noticeable number of diagonal ones, uh, and again these are done in landscape. And some uh, sometimes like levels three and four and one and two share a page. He then has um, some line diagrams. And I, again, I couldn't really figure out what they were. And one of these is uh, titled Level 4 Below Blackmore Castle. Solid lines are tunnels. And they're effectively line drawings which have black squares which are numbered. But I couldn't match those up really with anything so uh, again not really sure what the, those are for and this goes on all these diagrams through uh, all the various levels um, once we get to page 42 which is level 10 they are quite complex um, dungeon diagrams um, and after that on page 43 it goes to the Glendower uh, dungeons whatever they are uh, and that brings us up to the end of page 43
Um, pages 44 to 47 are to do with magic swords and matrix. And here Dave Arneson lists uh, a number of uh, magic swords with their particular properties. Also includes a matrix for generating your own magic um, swords. And this matrix includes things like the sword's magic ability, um, where you roll on a table. Um, uh, for example, there are uh, four possibilities in the first one. A side determination is, is the first one. Eight-sided die, one to four equals law. Five to six equals neutral. Seven to eight equals chaos. Number two is origins. Again, eight-sided die. One equals a holy sword. Two to six, fighter sword. Seven to eight, magician sword. Number three is intelligence. And that's a 12-sided die. And number four is egotism, 12-sided die. Um, and then there are some explanations of how things work to do with the swords intelligence and egotism and then there is a um, some tables where you generate for example um, what it's plus it's pluses might be against if it's versus neutral types there is a deep percentile you roll and for example if you rolled a oh, 27 you would get um, uh, animals and there are various tables uh, for these. There's uh, spell casting and special characteristics. Um, and some notes on holy swords uh, towards the end and sword enchantments by magic users. Pages 47 to 49 are gypsy sayings and chance cards. If I just read the introduction Dave Onsen gives here, it says, To allow for crystal ball gazing and the like, a set of chance cards was set up. Each month, one was drawn from the deck and its effect was worked into the game. As judge, I drew the cards one game year in advance to allow for a logical progression of events. So that's quite interesting to know that they were using um, a sort of equivalent of a, a random dice roll, but uh, using cards. Uh, they had gypsy sayings as well, and here Dave Arneson gives uh, 14 possible ones. Um, if I pick out uh, number two, it just says, Those who live in darkness desire light. Uh, and there's little sayings like that. Then there's a section on legends, and there are 25 listed here. And again, if I give um, number nine is the name, is the... Dragon's Island, and the location is Blackmoor Dungeon. It then moves on with chance cards. Uh, and here it says, I've listed the cards in chart form to save space. These cards represented strategic encounters for the Blackmoor area, though one could allow one of the 20 forces listed under the Great Invasion to be affected at random. Roll percentile dice to determine chance occurrence once a month. Uh, and if we just pick, I suppose, one at random, so there is a, a list here with percentages and then actions, and if 50 to 52 percentage, small Viking raid, 100 to 900 men, 1 to 10 ships with catapult, 1 to 6 heroes, 1 to 6 superheroes. Page 50 starts with the original Blackmore magic system. And I'm actually going to read this out because I find it quite interesting. In Blackmore, magic 
follow the formula pattern for most magic. The reasoning behind limiting the number of spells that a magic user could take down into the dungeon was simply that many of the ingredients had to be prepared ahead of time. And of course, once used, were then powerless. Special adventures could then be organised by the parties to gain some special ingredients that could only be found in some dangerous place. Progression reflected the increasing ability of the magic user to mix spells of greater and greater complexity. Study and practice were the most important factors involved. A magic user did not progress unless he used spells either in the dungeon or in practice. There were no there was no difference. Since there was always the chance of failure in spells, unless they were practiced, and materials for some spells were limited, determined simply by a die roll, the magic user did not go around practicing all the time. The magic user could practice low-level spells all the time cheaply and safely, but his constitution determined how often he could practice without rest. Thus, the adventurers might want a magic user to come with them, only to find him lying exhausted. So, to progress to a new spell, one first learned the spells and then got to use that spell. There was no automatic progression. Rather, it was a slow, step-by-step, spell-by-spell progression. And then it goes on to a description of magical items, which included an illusion projector, a borer, and robots. Pages 50 to 52 appear to be effectively a very early form of carousing tables uh, under the heading special interests and were effectively a way of the players spending their money on various things such as wine, women, song, wealth, fame, religion or spiritualism or a hobby and getting experience for it and there were some tables in there and an example <coughs> explaining how a fighting man might spend some of his money and showing the calculations for getting the experience out of it and then right at the bottom of page 52 is a few short paragraphs on how to become a bad guy so basically in that case you are able to play a chaotic character or monster. Pages 53 through to 56 are to do with Svensson's Freehold. And the text at the beginning is, Here is Svensson's Freehold. Greg Svensson began as a player with all the others, but during the later part of the first year, he really began clicking and had a character that has been in the game ever since that date. He plays more than most, but rather than take great risks, runs to fight another day. Thus, although incredibly long-lived, he is still only 15th level. There have been two other players, Bob Mayer and Richard Snyder, that have reached 20th level, getting them a free dinner, pat on the back and a retired character. But they are gone to a higher plane. In his early days, Greg built a small keep for himself and some friends, all from the Cars Fitz Society Group. And herein are the plans of that edifice. It was destroyed once, the second time Blackmore fell, but was rebuilt in total. Greg then went on to build Vestvolt Dungeon and another complete castle of his own on the outdoor survival board. And then it goes on on the next uh, page 53, 54, 
and 55 and 56 are the different levels of uh, Svensson's Freehold and we then see a top-down view on square paper, squared paper, where it's penned in with some notes written on showing where trapdoors are and secret passages and windows. Uh, quite nicely done, that. Page 57 is Richard Snyder's editions. It's a short paragraph which says, Richard Snyder has been one of the most enthusiastic players that I had. He evolved an entirely separate campaign of mythos on a small scale for the locals to play in. In addition to that, he came up with what I feel are an exceptional set of rules for dragons that settles a few of their problems. And then it goes on uh, with some tables which um, show this type of damage that they can do with the, with the various, the white, the black, the green, the blue, the red and the gold dragons. Um, the hit and die. Uh, whether they're in a layer, how far away they might be in percentage chances and a few notes as well. Um, for example, Red Dragons, 20% with a maximum level of 7 for magic using. Pages 58 to the end of the book at 64 are a bit of a hodgepodge, to be honest. Various things. It starts on page 58 with the title Differences in Creatures from Blackmore Game. So I don't know what the differences are between the Blackmore Game and what, but uh, an example of these, there are 10 given and... One of them is that Lycanthrope Bite does not turn you into Lycanthrope, but Death at Hands of Lycanthrope does. It goes into the population of the known area, and the known baron is at the start. There's a small section of three points about wizard apprenticeships, a little bit about languages and the odds of creature friendship. There's then a section on hero and superhero flunkies, so apparently you can purchase these, but there is a chance of them actually taking over your barony. Then there's a section on vampires uh, with six points, basically to do with what actually applies to vampires in the Blackmore campaign by the look of it. And there's a short section on an explanation of creature psychology. And then it goes on to talk about Locke Gloomin. Uh, and the intro to this says, at the end of the third year, the guys at Blackmore were exiled for losing Blackmore to the baddies. They really messed it up bad. So under heavy escort, they all ended up in late blooming with the goods they could carry and were dumped there. So a new area was added and the details provided. And then the following sections are really um, some random tables for generating what's in a hex by the look of it. And then uh, the map locations where it actually details um, stuff that you can actually find there. For example, Owl Cave, 15 passages, 110 magic points, in brackets, six lycanthropes. And they're all a bit of a mess, if I'm honest, these tables, and they sort of merge into one another. And then there's a section on Bleakwood. 
which apparently was a special, it was an area for special convention demonstrations, but only used at Gen Con 8, and was then accidentally destroyed. Then there's a magical item summary, again on a percentile based, depending on what you roll with what you can get. And then some more on dragons uh, as encounters with uh, some points about them, about the chances of them being in their lair and stuff like that. And how, also on how to capture a dragon and its retail value. Then a section on orcs, which shows an obvious link to uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, where he says um, there's one group called the Orcs of Mordor, another called the Isengarders. And then he runs through various types of monsters that might be met, like bandits, nomads, trolls and ogres, with a small um, few sentences detailing their sort of wealth and um, potential m magic items that they might possess and stuff like that. And then it finishes on page 63 with another Ken Simpson diagram for half a page which is titled A Single Overview Shot of the Town Where the Tomb of the Grey Dragon is Located in Glendower. This setup was used down at the local hobby shop several times for semi-outdoor town adventures. And the very last page is uh, the Judges Guild uh, Bill of Fare, as it were, where it lists the items that are available for purchase and the costs that are there. Um, I like these costs, stuff like the City State of Invincible Overlord for $8.00. My, how that's changed. So, in summary, what do I think of the first fantasy campaign? Well, I've got to be honest, it's a bit of a mess. Uh, as an historical document, it's extremely interesting, but as something to actually use in a campaign, to actually play through, it's just a hodgepodge of stuff. Um, which even for the time it was published, 1977, was pretty poorly organised, I think. Um, and it does give the impression of just being thrown together off Dave Arneson's notes with very little editing. There's lots of spelling mistakes and syntax errors and stuff. <clears throat> the maps aren't bad, though, to be fair. They're, they're, they're pretty decent. Um, it just needed some better organisation, I think. It's certainly something which I'd like sitting in my collection, but will I ever use it? No, I don't think I will. Anyway, that's my tuppence worth. I hope this was of use as a review of Dave Arneson's first fantasy campaign. A big thank you to TJ Drennan for providing the introduction music to this podcast. TJ has a Patreon, the link to which are provided in the notes, where he provides transitions and uh, pieces of music available for download. You've been listening to Shandy Andy's Unguarded Treasure. If you'd like to contact me, please drop me a message on Anchor. Email me at shandyandy at gmail.com or possibly find me hanging around at Audio Dungeon Discord channel.